Welcome to the Sports Science Dudes. I am your host, Dr. Jose Antonio, with my inimitable co-host, Dr. Tony Ricci. Uh, today, our special guest is Dr. Douglas Kalman. But before we get to Doug, hit the subscribe button and like the show. And if you could like it like 35 times, that's even better. Just hit the like <laughs> button and just like it. Like, 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 like. Although I don't think they let you do that. They got rid of the dislike button. I don't know if you yes, know. Yes, they did. Yeah, so... You, you can't even see how many dislikes there are, which maybe is a good thing for us. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, subscribe to the show. Also, I want to mention the ISSN conference. We will all be there June 15 to 17. It is in Fort Lauderdale uh, Beach, Florida. Again, that's June 15 to 17. Uh, to register, go to ISSN.net. That is ISSN.net. Now, our special guest today is Dr. Douglas Kalman. He's a PhD RD. Uh, his most recent, um, uh, well, he's had many career moves. In fact, he's like the jack of all trades of, of things in the industry. He was recently the senior vice president of scientific and regulatory affairs for the NPA, Natural Products Association. But actually, uh, you know, going back, Dr. Kalman received his undergrad degree from Florida State. Woohoo, to Seminoles. Yeah. Seminoles, unless you're from <laughs> University of Florida. <laughs> um his master's degree from Hunter College, I do recall giving a talk there like, I don't know, 30 years ago or something. I don't, it was like forever ago, Doug. Yes. <laughs> that was, yeah, that was a, another lifetime. Um, he's an active member and spokesperson for many organizations, the ISSN, NSCA, APS. Uh, and he's a co-founder, and this is a big deal. He's a co-founder of the ISSN, the International Society of Sports Nutrition. He's edited four academic textbooks. He has consulted and probably has worked in, in probably more, a, a greater variety of, of, I guess, careers or jobs in the sports nutrition industry. He's a wealth of knowledge, particularly with the regulatory stuff. In fact, that's the stuff I can't seem to uh, stay uh, abreast. And if I have any questions, I just ask uh, Dr. Kalman. And also, he's also an adjunct professor at our university, Tony, Nova Southeastern University. The Division so, II basketball champs just want to make mention one more time. That's true. That's true. So, uh, Douglas, uh, welcome to the show. It's good to have you. It's uh, Thank you for, for having me. It's my pleasure to make it to the Sports Science Dudes show and to uh, be a dude along with you two. <laughs> hey, you, yeah, you're an official Sports Science Dude. So I want to, as, 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 as I want to go back to when we first met, this was... I want to say the 1990s, early yeah. 90s. Yes. Was, okay. And uh, is that sorry, when you invited I, me? I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I had to have to, to cut for a second. Uh, uh, I have my dog barking by the door, so I need to push the dog away. Sorry, I hear the dog and don't want the dog to get louder. Okay. Well, excuse me a second. Push the dog away. And uh, Tony and I will uh, talk about the latest in sports science. Um, hey, the project that you're doing with Dr. Jamie Tarter, the running project. Do you need more subjects? I got subjects to send you. Yes, um, and I'm speaking to her just in about a, uh, right after this about how many oh. more we could use. So, yep, okay, looking at perfect. the inflammatory markers post exercise, absolutely. Yeah, because I know I, I know one of my students is like, oh, I talked to Professor Ricci. He says he says he's going to recruit me. I'm like, okay, well, when he recruits you, let me know. Well, they told me I was going to recruit him, but that's okay. We just might recruit him. Okay. Um, so let's go back to the 1990s, which is, I think, when I first uh, met Doug. It was, I think, to speak at Hunter College. And I remember, and I felt like I was in a Seinfeld episode, for those of you who remember Seinfeld. He lived in an apartment where <laughs> the bathroom was about as wide as your laptop, just so you know. Think of your laptop. That's how wide the bathroom was. And when you sat on the toilet, you could look across the street and see the people across the street. And I was like, Welcome to New York City. Yep. <laughs> yes. Doug's bathroom was like, I think it was like the narrowest bathroom I've ever seen in my life. Uh, uh, it, yes, I, I do remember that apartment. And that was on 50th and 1st uh, uh, in the city. Uh, so, Tony, you know, 1st uh, uh, Avenue and 50th Street, that area. That would be Sutton little, Place, no? Uh, yeah, a little bit north of Sutton Place, okay. uh, Sutton Place, a little bit north of the UN, it, you know. Yeah. And and it, it was a a one bedroom apartment, uh, uh, um, and and uh, uh, Joey's right. You could have uh, you, you just had one view going down a long hallway there, and <laughs> but sometimes in in New York City, you 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 
you take what you can get when when you're apartment hunting. So, uh, and Joey, I believe that was probably around either 95 or 96, somewhere around there. Okay. And yes, you did come to give a talk at Hunter College for the Greater New York chapter of the American College of Sports uh, uh, Medicine, ACSM. Yes. And it was at Hunter College and it was coordinated, uh, may he now rest in peace, uh, Doctor by Dr. Um, Louis Meharam. And, yes, I remember. Um, yes. Okay. And along with a uh, an exercise physiologist and a gentleman whose name you may recognize, uh, 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 Dr. Thomas Burke, um, different than Ed Burke, Thomas Burke. Um, okay. And, and uh, 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 but Tom did a lot of work with, uh, of course, with, you know, uh, people like uh, um, Bill McArdle. Uh, and others because one was at Hunter College, one was at Queens College, and they're just one county away from each other in 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 New York. In New York, McCardle of McCardle Catch and Catch. Yes, McCard Bill McCardle was uh, a professor at Queens Co at yep. Queens College, um, and, and yes, and and they were just lifelong friends. Him and the um, Catch brothers. Yeah, and one thing I never got used to, and I'm sure Tony, you would have gotten used to this, but I think you had warned me, Doug, that. Oh, you'll hear a lot of honking at night, like cars honking, which I was like, okay, well, I'm not, I've never lived inside a city, so I don't really hear cars honking, but yeah, there were a lot of cars honking and I'm like, holy shit, I'm never going to fall asleep here. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, so on, on the, the bedroom window or the only window really, uh, besides the bathroom window faced <laughs> first Avenue and in New York, you know, it's a 24 seven city. And um, buses run all the time so that you could hear one at 2 a.m. or whatever. And that typically the garbage collection was done overnight. Oh, they're the worst. Right. So you would hear them and then the sweep, uh, the, the street uh, sweeping vehicles that would wash and sweep the street, even though you wouldn't believe it was. But yes. <laughs> um, so uh, to me, it was kind of interesting. Um, my first time leaving New York City and going to stay at a friend's place in Stanford, Connecticut, I could not sleep because it was too quiet. Oh my God. <laughs> you needed the noise. I got used to it, you know? <laughs> so sort, to of, you sort of like when you're a teenager, sometimes a lot of teenagers, you know, um, listen to music and fall asleep. Yeah. I, there's, Maybe yeah. Or have the TV on and fall asleep. Maybe there was something related to it. I don't know. Well, well, I know Tony has issues with his sleep, his sleep quality and quantity. Uh, you know, if, if all he had to do is put headphones on and listen to music, I, you know, he'd be the happiest man on earth. But yeah, I wish it was that simple. It's much more complicated for uh, Tony. Um, Understood. And I and I know. And um, that's that's the call of the ocean. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, I think, you know, it's interesting when we first met, we both had um, a, a similar attitude, I guess, towards the sports nutrition and sports supplement both the industry and also the science or sort of maybe the lack of science or the way science was treated in terms of sports nutrition. And I remember, you know, maybe, I don't know if we had a conversation specifically then, or it's just sort of this ongoing conversation about um, dietitians versus non-dietitians when it comes to sports nutrition. And you were always a big proponent of whoever knows sports nutrition should give sports nutrition advice. And as a dietitian, it seemed like you were quite hated by other dietitians because you held that view. And I remember it, it was a story you told about, you know, why dietitians and actually everybody, we all used to use or still use McArdle Catch and Catch or Catch and Catch's book. And there's a sports nutrition component. And maybe you had mentioned to me that you had asked a group of dietitians to use that book if you felt that the Catch brothers were unqualified to give sports nutrition advice when in fact you're using their textbook, even though they're not dietitians, And you held really quite the renegade view, um, which I always appreciated because, you know, all of us are kind of renegades to a point, but I'm sure during your, you know, your master's degree in Florida state, th this had to come about with your interactions with, with maybe your professors or other students. Tell a little bit about how that started. I think it started by being born and growing up in New York and uh, sometimes not being either afraid or inhibited to ask a question or to give an opinion or to try to see through the weeds about what is the bigger story here. So when it comes to the topic that you bring up, I, I do remember distinctly, I was also very active with the group uh, 
formerly known as SCAN from the uh, mm -hmm. then American Dietetic Association. They changed their name also, but it's a dietary practice group of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. And there was hard policy that no one can become a SCAN member unless they were either an honorary member, like bestowed upon them, or they were an RD. And to me, that just did not make logical sense because you cannot discuss and understand sports nutrition or the application of nutrition for sport without the work of mostly people that are not RDs. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the example of giving um, McCardo catch and catch is, you know, in undergrad exercise science or exercise phys, you know, at least back then, uh, and for 20 plus years, that was the standard book used. And, 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 and there's, um, a, of course, a nutrition component. And to do sports nutrition, you actually have to understand not just glycolysis or Krebs cycle or, or gluconeogenesis, but you also have to understand muscle energetics. To me, you also have to understand, um, uh, you know, nutrient repletion, you also have to understand basic physiology and cellular metabolism in aerobic and anaerobic states and, and all of these different things, because an athlete just doesn't live in one phase, right? Mm -hmm. Most athletes, right? And so how can the uh, SCAN or the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics related group have such a position when even the, the, the books that we learn from and, and, and invited speakers to their conference are such people like a uh, Bill Evans, William Evans, right? PhD, not RD, uh, uh, who did extensive work with Nancy Clark, somebody that's an RD, a, a great writer, great dietitian, great sport nutritionist. Um, and so it just didn't make any logical sense to me. And it still doesn't when people try to put things in, stay in your lane. But no, there's overlapping lanes. It's why that when you drive, uh, most of the time it's dashed lines, not a solid line. Right. You know, um, um, it's just how you go about expanding, you know, the greater understanding. You know, five, 10 years ago, there wasn't thoughts of um, either nutritional neuroscience or nutritional psychiatry. But yet now those are, are growing fields of both academic research, uh, peer-reviewed journals, conferences, and even how some uh, uh, people utilize the information for their practice. So, and, 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 you know, part of what I also saw, and this might be for anywhere, but part of what I also observed in general was people being afraid of change. So they like to stay within their own group, meaning of thought processes, leadership um, and, and uh, discourse. And so sometimes it's easier to, to label somebody a problem child. You know, versus, <laughs> that would versus, be you. <laughs> yeah, uh, or, uh, uh, Jake Paul and myself um, versus, um, you know, asking what are they really trying to say if they're not communicating it well, or what are they saying? And even though I don't like it, what are they saying? <laughs> You know, right? Well, so, yeah. Why do you think, though, there's uh, and we had, I mean, in our previous podcast, Tony, with uh, Cassie Evans and um, Katie, uh, yeah. Katie, I mean, both new, I mean, they're newly minted RDs, but even they sense that there is a culture that exists within the dietetics profession that frowns upon people like you, Doug, where you really just, I, you're just asking questions, to be honest, which is what every scientist should do just ask questions and if you get a crappy answer then you just keep asking the same question you know waiting for a reasonable response so what is it about the culture i i i think that sometimes there's a part people don't like to be challenged um i also think that you know perhaps it's the way that the question's asked i have to admit that i don't always you know, sometimes I'm a bull in a China shop um, um, or, or they actually n either never thought of it or they haven't um, confronted it, want to discuss it, you know, because I remember even a time as a, um, an undergraduate student at Florida State, I did my undergrad there and, and, and master's work at Hunter College. But the undergrad, I remember 
after a couple of semesters feeling frustrated to myself, thinking I'm really trying very hard in these classes. Um, and, and there's two professors specifically and, and studying and uh, putting in effort, going to the office, asking questions, asking a question in the class, more often in the class than going to the office. Um, and then realized or thought, no matter how much I asked, every time I'm asking a question, it seems like the answer's coming back. You're a pain in the ass. Why am I, why are you asking this question? And, and it became frustrating to me because I was wanting to learn and understand, you know, and might go back to childhood. And, and I just mentioned it might be a joke, might not. But even unfortunately for my sister, when I was very young, I wanted to understand how a bicycle worked. And she's three years older. So maybe when she was five or six and I was um, uh, either two or three, um, there's my parents have pictures of this and, and, and I do somewhere. I just I took apart her bicycle, her two wheel <laughs> bicycle while she was like in daycare or school and, and um, you know, mostly put it back together, but not really <laughs> because I wanted to understand how did it work? Same way that I wanted to understand that if, if you feed, if you feed alanine to a glycogen depleted or low glycogen athlete as part of a beverage, would it enhance and upregulate, if you will, for lack of a better term or correct term at the moment, regulation during that low glycogen period during exercise? These are things that Good if question. you understand, you know, uh, metabolism are questions that can be asked either as, um, in general or discussions or what people make master's thesis out of and or doctoral work. And uh, again, I think it's in wanting to understand the human body. Um, um, I think all of us uh, somehow are involved in physiology because we want to understand the human body. That is true. And I know, I mean, Tony and I, we've, we've talked a bit about you know, the idea for sports nutrition is all of that stuff, the bioenergetics, the, you know, motor unit recruitment. Um, yeah, it's more than just glycolysis in a Krebs cycle, but it's also, uh, you have to know the sport. Like if you don't understand the culture of the sport, even us as sports nutritionists, we're probably only very good in a narrow window because these are the sports that we understand the culture of. And oftentimes it's just who you're around. Tony's around fighters. So that's his bread and butter. I'm around endurance athletes a lot. So that's sort of what I know, but it's even hard to cross over unless you kind of live that sport. And I think that's where, I think that's where a lot of nutritionists sort of forget that you got to know sports for this. I, I first have a question both for you and, and Tony, because you mentioned Tony has a, a big background with combat athletes, right? And, and yourself with endurance athletes. And you mentioned bread and butter. Do either of those athletes eat bread and butter? Yes, um, not by either of our recommendations. <laughs> well, sometimes there's nothing wrong with, with a whole, you know, depending upon the type of bread and depending upon tub of butter versus stick. You get, no, you know? I'm, all with, I'm all with you on butter. I think it's actually a wonderful substance. You, you know, Doug, sometimes one of the best smelling foods is hot bread out of an oven with butter slathered on it. So there you go. <laughs> big proponent of bread and butter. The problem is when I go to restaurants and they have good bread and butter, I can literally get full on bread and butter. And then, right. you know, then I get the steak and I'm like, my God, I'm already full. Um, right. But yeah. <laughs> big I, I think sort of, yeah, no, great question on that. Um, you know, in, in regards to the specificity, right, of the culture too. Because at one time, just Doug, before you, you address this, at strength and conditioning went the same way, though, right? You had one strength coach for three or four sports 25, 30 years ago. Now you people are specializing in one single sport in performance coaching or strength coaching. Um, but nutrition, I would I, I would think, kind of has gone a similar route, right, in the sports nutrition realm. And to, to Joey's question there as, um, you know, immersing yourself in the culture and knowing the sport is vital, I would think. I very much think, because to me, doesn't mean you have to be good in that sport. Right. But the sort of, if you can more than book understand, right? If you can experience it, then you know what it might feel like. Not every one of us will know what it's like to play a nine inning baseball game. And, right. um, but you should know, well, there is some physical activity in between standing and, and what kind of shape you need to be in or what's optimal. And then you have to think about if you're a baseball nutritionist, well, is there body weight and joint issues over, a, you know, over the, you know, over the season to, mm -hmm. to, to wonder about and all these other things that come into play. But here's a question that I come back to you with. There was something that I was discussing earlier 
um, 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 in a way with uh, Louise Burke, a uh, great nutritionist out of uh, and researcher out of um, uh, down under Australia, right? New Zealand. Yeah. And um, uh, is sports nutrition about health? Oh, the quick answer to that is no. It's not about health. It's about performance. And I think athletes are willing to sacrifice health if they win. And in, and in fact, we all know Julius Thomas, former NFL player. Um, he said that if you ask NFL players, despite all the injuries and the, the debilitating injuries they have when they're older, if they would be willing to still play again, he says they'll all say yes. Mm. So for them, it has nothing to do with health. So um, was Dr. Burke's position different? And, and Tony, you know, pipe in if you think it's, you know, if sport, if it's about health or to me, I don't think health really comes in the equation. Well, yeah, I'll preface it quickly. Uh, I'll go with a quick answer and then let Doug really address this in length. Look, if you're a left tackle in football and your quarterback's right-handed, you're going to get big money, right? LTs, left tackles, offensive tackles make big money. The blind side protector. If you're already 6'6", not maybe that's six seven. That's not even great for your health. But if you got to put on a hundred pounds to make that position and and get the big pay, you're going to do it. And walking around at six seven, three thirty five, three forty is probably not great for you. But nevertheless, the responsibility of the nutrition uh, professional at that time is to get them to three forty five, right? And to get them there because that's what's going to facilitate their position. But above and beyond all the payday. So I'm with you. Uh, at, at most points, I think they diverge and they diverge uh, quite largely, both health and performance. Doug, up to you. Well, one of the, you, you, you teed this off perfectly by mentioning football, because we do have data regarding football players and uh, expected or life expectancy, right? Mm -hmm. And we do have data regarding uh, a professional football players and um, major diseases, heart disease, diabetes. And we know that typically, um, if you play in the NFL, on average, according to the data, you die about 20 years earlier than everybody else. Wait, is that, it's that much sooner? Is yes. it 20? Is it, yeah. I think linemen, maybe not every wow. position, but I right. believe that's, Doug Wright. That's a, With linemen, yes. Yes. Wow. But and and I'm 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 aggregating everybody, yeah, but it's yeah, different yeah. by position. Mm -hmm. A tight end is a lot different than a lineman is right, going to be right. different than the kicker. Um, um, and no offense to any position, they're just different sizes different, and shapes. Yep. Um, uh, and and but all in all, being equal, it's not the NFL's fault, but it it it's looking at the 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 weight for the height and the way that you eat, because even in football. Um, if those extra pounds do not slow down a player, they're able to keep the same speed, then they look at it as a positive because there's more momentum going forward if you're a, a lineman pushing one way or the other. Um, and, and so, therefore, it's good. But it's not good for your internal organs, not good for your internal health. So one of the things that um, uh, there's a friend of mine, she's um, uh, a registered dietitian, and she used to be the sport nutritionist for the Miami Dolphins, and now she works for the USDA. And Pascal Jean is her name. And Pascal used to always say that one of the biggest things that she aimed to work on with the Dolphins were setting you up for success after you're done playing mm -hmm. from a nutrition, education, life health standpoint, because of the data that shows you know, a, a earlier, a greater incidence of diabetes and hypertension and heart disease. And uh, when you have more hypertension, you have greater risk of, 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 all, of earlier mortality. So that, that you know, the, the real issues here are for sport nutrition, it's about in the now. Yeah. So I was asking, Louise was asking about what questions should they focus on for myths about sport nutrition in an upcoming uh, session that she's having. And I said that sport nutrition in the now is about health because it's not. I agree with you, Joey. It's about performance. And sometimes what you need to perform your best is not going to necessarily be the best for longevity. Right. Right. Or the best for whatever it might be. Longevity is probably the ultimate thing. Right. Because right. you're not yeah. long, you die early. So um, um, it's unfortunate. <laughs> um, so I, I do think one of the exciting things about sport nutrition is that you can you can specialize 
and that, but you cannot necessarily generalize. We do know that there are general truths about physiology. There are generally general truths about physics and thermodynamics, right? And that everybody always says, you know, when they're, you know, promoting themselves, I'm different. Well, you are, but you're not. Exactly. Right? <laughs> you know, um, but one of the things that I think that is often misunderstood about sport nutrition by a lot of early stage sport nutritionists, and even in the time period, Joey, that you and I first met, is that it, the thought process is here. I wrote you your plan. Follow this, right? Well, what about if you're on your plan, you want me eating oats and broccoli and, and well, heck, I haven't met a piece of broccoli that I ever liked, so I won't do that. I'm not saying that I'm being facetious, but real. Sure. And oats, I don't even know how to make them. So why are you putting that on my list? So you have, meaning I'm trying to give a funny but real world example of when you're talking about one-on-one -on -one nutrition, taking the evidence-based and applying it as the ISSN does through its recommendations and position stands, right? It really spells it out for people what to do and how or how to do and what. Um, uh, to, and, and, and this is, you know, you... you you really have to have it uh, uh, all encompassing and be giving, you know, giving this kind of stuff thought, you know, so. Any thoughts in terms of how you've dealt with the myriad of fighters who have, you know, such different wants and needs as it applies to food and supplements? Well, sure. and I think, I think Dr. Cal here is right on because the linear prescription, there are some basic things that you want to address, right? But, um, to his point about broccoli or, you know, you know, it maybe it's facetious, but it's not like, you know, you still have athletes, you know, you have a, an Aljo, right? Great kid. Now the bantamweight champ of the world from Jamaica, right? You get another kid who's a champ from Kazakhstan. I mean, they didn't grow up eating the same, right? So they may not have even seen the same foods in their life. But the point to that is that's where the art of nutrition comes in is taking those principles, principles and inherently assuming that they're not going to apply perfectly to everyone. This is why I get angry when somebody writes a dietary practice, you know, for people and, and swears that it's the only method of eating when they have no clue as to any of these variables that we just talked about. But uh, my other, my extended point to your question, Joey, is that like, if I'm going to try to get somebody to make weight or practice good dietary habits in order to make a weight cut more effective, I have to take some of those things into consideration. If you're from an island like Jamaica and you grew up on a lot of, let's say fish and a lot of seafood, well, we're going to have to use that in the dietary practice. If you come from Nebraska, all right, and you never ate a piece of fish in your life and you grew up on a cattle ranch, I'm not going to recommend sushi. And so the first thing we have to do is kind of adjust it accordingly. It is wonderful to Doug's point to say, here's what you're supposed to do, but you're probably not going to get the buy-in and adherence. So you have to, to some extent, at least uh, bring some familiarity to the dietary practice. You have a better shot at creating adherence, even in a weight cut sport, right? Oh, eat this food, eat this food. It's not even remotely familiar to the person. So that type of, the, the, the art of dietary practice, which I never understood, here is the way to eat. Whether it's the you know, the uh, and organization saying, no, we know this diet is best. Okay, then let's go home. We don't need any of you RDs. We don't need any, we don't need anybody. We don't need a sports nutritionist. If there's one way to eat, let's all get, take it. Let's all read it and let's go home and have everybody do it. And there's no reason to consult any. So yeah. the, oh, the, the, the art of it all is in adjusting these major principles. It's a playbook, right? A, a football coach sits there with a game plan. It's got 120 plays on it. If a few things don't work, there's plays on the other side of that, that card. We, and, and we adjust. And that, that's the art of dietary practice. I've had to do it in weight cut because I'm not going to get, if somebody says to me, I hate that food and I have another option, let's go with the other option. Well, that brings me to the point that I was really trying to get at. And Tony, I think that you'd appreciate this from the psychology standpoint. When and because you mentioned the diversity of people that you could work with in right. any sport, right? We live in a global um, a global world. So um, and in higher level sports, you're more apt to meet people from moreover right. versus um the county level. And um, that being said, not only are you taking in their heritage and their background, but I also think really, and I take this from a religion standpoint or psychology mm. standpoint, meet the person where they are. Exactly. Right. So if a person tells me, listen. I, I don't know how to cook. I, I eat out. Right? Okay. So then 
you have to say, all right, where do you eat? Okay, are you willing to That's use right. these? Are you willing to use these prepared meals or to buy from you know like and you know and along the way teach them? But you have to start where they are. So if that means like you have an athlete or I have an athlete that they're a professional athlete, but because they're they're um, not yet higher level, they're not making the bigger income. They still have a job plus their thirty hours of training per week or That's however right. many it is, right? You know, you have to help them or we help them with the balance, meaning like what to prepare and what to bring with you. What can you pick up on your way? Oh, you like that place? Here's your choices. You know, so to make it reality, to meet them where they are. And I think that's the, one of the biggest things about translating the, the art. No, that is the art of translating the art. The science yep. of nutrition to practical nutrition. Exactly. Right? It, yeah, as you speak right now, and then I'll, I'll let you pick up on this, but it's Ramadan, right? I have to learn from my Muslim athletes what the practice is. What yeah. would be their traditional foods after sundown? What do we do now if they're, they're in a fight camp at the same time, right? So it's wonderful to say, here's your grams of carbs. Here's your grams of protein. You must have this every hour. But, you know, boy, you talk about throwing science on its head trying to have a lead performance while fasting for, you know, 30 to 40 days at a time and not eating until later. So you're, I love that point about immersing yourself and getting to know one's culture in order to do that. As you mentioned that. I asked one of my athletes who, who is, who is, you know, uh, full in Ramadan right now, right. Yeah. And observant if he minds when possible to share pictures of the meal he's having. Right. So here's like an example. I'm just trying to block his name, but you can see this. Uh, it's not really seeing it. I don't know. Yeah, how to work it. There it is. There it there is. There you go. We got it. It's a that. piece of fish with a whole bunch of vegetables. Yep. Oh, essentially. Okay. And, okay. and a, a little bit of uh, 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 root carbs underneath, right? Very little. We're also dropping weight. But, you know, showing you, like I asked him, let me get familiar with what exactly. you're doing, right? You know, and I know that there's going to be a, a different meal that he's going to send next, but I, I wanted to see what are you breaking it with? What are you eating? You know, and, and it's to become familiar. And, and, and that's very, very important, not only to be familiar with the latest science, not being stuck in some book from 20 years ago, right. um, um, or being married to one position, right? Being married to, oh, it only has to be high carbs for every athlete and the carb doesn't matter. No, it does. And no, it doesn't have to be. You know, I think that there's recipes for success that are true within sport nutrition for practitioners as well as in other aspects of life right you know yeah, and that harkens back to i'm glad you guys mentioned carbs because this is one of those areas you know the idea of there's a there's an art to giving you know i guess dietary advice or nutrition advice or supplement advice and the carb i've always been a little skeptical of the carb recommendations even though it's there's like umpteen publications on it Endurance athletes need, I think, anywhere from six to 10 grams per kilo of carbohydrate. And I can assure you, I have not met a single endurance athlete. And I know some that are actually quite good that they're, they always, they're always on the podium. They're either first, second, or third. They're not close to that. And I'm thinking, okay, obviously this is based on data somewhere. Yet, I don't know anyone who does it. I mean, do you know anyone who does 10 grams per kilo, Doug? 10 grams per kilo? Of You're carbs? talking 3,500 calories to 4,000 in carbs alone. Yeah. So no, and I'll bring you back. Very rare, very rare, right? But I'll bring you back, Joey, to if you remember when you worked for, I believe it was Metrics, yeah. you and I were both doing some work with what was then called the Nike's, uh, Nike Elite Distance Racing Team or the Oregon Project. And oh, Alberto Alberta. Salazar was the coach. Yeah. And part of my job that I was, you know, doing work there for was doing nutrition analysis for the, the contracted athletes, uh, the distance runners that Nike had. And those runners were all top 10 in the world in whether it was 5k, 10k, half marathon or marathon. And the biggest component of the uh, common commonality of all of their diet was Pop-Tarts pizza and Gatorade, <laughs> right? Now, those do have a lot of carbs, Yeah, <laughs> but it also amazed me, people that are top two in the, in the world in the marathon, uh, in the 10K, in the, all, they were, this is what they subsisted on. 
Yeah, and, they ain't and, like shit. <laughs> yeah, and so I, I said, listen, we can easily make you at least one percent better by changing some of this. Right. You know, are you willing to do this? And 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 they and some were and and whatever. But so it's just a real world example that, and and in practical terms, it's also hard. But I also wanted to jump back for a second because when you introduced me, you also mentioned of, of my uh, regulatory background. Mm -hmm. And uh, to, to let the listeners know, um, for years, you know, for 25 plus years, I've worked in aspects of, of uh, clinical research, uh, academic, hospital, uh, overlaps of all of them, and uh, within regulatory. So regulatory is the FDA oversight of foods, drugs, cosmetics, dietary supplements, medical devices, and a slew of other uh, um, things. Uh, as well as the Federal Trade Commission, which is the agency of our government that regulates uh, advertising slash marketing. With the FDA and with the FTC as related to dietary supplements, there are overlaps. The easiest way to think about it is that the FDA regulates what's in the bottle, while the FTC regulates in part what is marketed about the mm -hmm. bottle. But the FDA also regulates what's on the outside of the bottle, meaning the label. And that's mm -hmm. where there's overlap. The claims that are made on a label are both regulated by FDA and FTC with different sets of regulations, um, some overlapping regulations and some different sets. And also like the label supplement facts label is regulated by the FDA about what needs to be on it, in it, what font has to be used and all of this other kind of stuff. And when it comes to dietary supplements, it's very important to understand and think about, you know, that it is a regulated industry. It's actually more regulated than foods, more regulated than dietary, uh, than cosmetics, more regulated than personal care, more regulated than medical devices, or differently, but more regulated than medical devices. And there, this fact gets lost, or these facts get lost a lot by media, where media likes to utilize clickbait mentality or clickbait marketing, clickbait whatever, because needing views and ad dollars and things like this. So I, I mention all of this because there are a lot of myths with consumers that are propagated by people that don't like industry, like class action lawyers. Um, some even by federal government and federal government agencies, which is being which is done on purpose because they would like to expand their regulatory capabilities and regulatory hold or stranglehold um, and things along those lines. So, you know, Joey, you and I both became somewhat involved in the industry or research with dietary supplements before there was a dietary supplement health education act which was the 1994 law that made the FDA regulate dietary supplements as a subset of foods known as Deshay. And dietary supplements are regulated not only by a federal act, right? The FFDC, uh, so the Federal uh, Food and Drug and Cosmetic Administration, right? The federal act, it's also regulated by Deshay, also regulated under the the rules of uh, the Food Safety Modernization Act, the Foreign Supplier Verification Program. Now remember, and I mentioned Foreign Supplier Verification Program, and you might be thinking, what the heck does that have to do with my creatine and my protein shake? Well, anything that comes from outside the US for dietary ingredients, whether they are food ingredients, i.e. cinnamon that's gonna be used to make muffins, um, or, cinnamon that's being sold as an extract in a pill as a dietary supplement. If it's coming from outside the US, who and where it comes from has to be vetted by the FDA or an FDA certified agent or an agent that meets FDA criteria. There's a lot of if, ands, or buts there, but essentially they have to be vetted and on the approved list. If not, then those ingredients can be stopped by the Customs and Border Patrol, which is also involved in the regulation of dietary supplements right? Um, and as well as the FDA. So there's a lot of people that have hands in dietary supplement regulation globally. And this is not thought about when some people go to, and I just use this for a common name or their local health food store, local supplement store, even these days, you, I buy most of my supplements at Publix, the supermarket that's close to me because yeah. they sell them and they have fair prices. 
Well, so, let me ask you this. No, this is I no, this is great information. I, I have to say that in addition to the myth of protein being bad for your kidneys, probably the second most common I hear is, oh, the supplement industry isn't regulated. And and usually my response is, believe it or not, I think it's overregulated. But that that's more of a political discussion than than really a scientific one. I think it's overregulated. And they're like, oh, no, it's not regulated at all. No. As you sort of you you walked us through those steps, there's a lot of regulation that goes on. And if you ever go into any any manufacturing plant, you'll notice that um, you know the the uh, the controls they put on manufacturing products is really fairly it's it's quite stringent. Um, tell, so, a matter tell of me, fact, I'm sorry, Joey. To your point, when you're talking about manufacturing, there is what's known as Part 111 and part 211 of the code of, of, of federal regulations of the CFR title 21 um, that regulate manufacturing facilities for pharmaceutical agents, which can be your over-the-counter Claritin to a regular prescription item and for foods and slash dietary supplements. The, the dietary supplement regulations, which is part of the good manufacturing practices and part of this for, for part 11 versus 211, are pretty much in, I think it's called uh, lock and key okay, with okay. each other. So th th that the importance of the manufacturing and the regulations are so similar that it, it's you, you, you really have to be impressed if you really understand the background for uh, compliant manufacturing and what goes into the, to the pill that's being or powder or, or whatever that the end user is taking. A, prag a pragmatic question, Doug. Uh, what's allowed in terms of if, let's say, you have a, a a capsule that has multiple ingredients, and on the label it says, you know, it has whatever um, 100 milligrams of caffeine or choline. How much error is there above and below what's on the label that's allowed? Is it per ingredient, or is there a flat? You know, you could do plus or minus. You know, 10 percent or 5 percent or whatever. So. It's kind of interesting, the question that you ask. And I say that because there are federal guidelines for what the error rate can be for things like calories, total fat, total carb, total protein, how much they're allowed to be off versus the food label, and as well as for the vitamins and minerals. But the other portion, other ingredients like a choline, which there's um, which is, you know, a, a nutrient that is definitely needed in the diet uh, and needed for cognitive health and a whole bunch of other things, that there's two answers there. So for a manufacturer, first, when they are creating, let's say their spec sheet for creating a product, a compliant manufacturer will put in what their target is and what their own error rate that they're looking for, what they find acceptable for themselves which may or may not match, let's say, for example, the 10% the, the, the range that's allowed by FDA. So, you know, um, or 20%, depending upon what it is, 10%, 20%, there's, there's, there are differences. So, uh, but, but nonetheless, you can either put it into like your specifications and your standard operating procedures that you are following that your own guidelines, if there's not a federal guideline to follow. So, but in generally, we should look for things to be within no more than 20% off from their label claim. And that's plus or minus? Yes, sir. For a substance like caffeine, where taking too much is more of an issue than not taking enough, is, is do manufacturers, would they purposely, not underreport, but err on the lower side? Excuse me. Um, I'm sorry, I, I don't really follow that question. So you're talking about caffeine. Yeah, let's say, I, you know, because let's say you're taking- It's better for a manufacturer to, to underdose their caffeine than over, but still because it's a litigious society and you will have some law firms and others that will, if you're a popular caffeinated energy drink or a popular product with caffeine, um, and you're using a supplement fax label or even a nutrition fax label, um, there is always a chance that somebody will buy 
a whole bunch of your products, send it out for testing and know that if you're not within the, the stated range, that then therefore you are defrauding the consumer um, um, uh, uh, and your label is, mis, uh, is misleading. Mm-hmm. So there are law firms that specialize in those kind of class actions and, and you know, do that kind of testing. But also companies are supposed to do their own quality control, quality assurance testing on a lot by lot, batch by batch basis uh, and have a, a, you know, a, a master batch record. So, however, if you are thinking about, is it better to be slightly over or slightly under? The answer is really to me, part of that, uh, I'm sorry, part of the answer going back from an education standpoint for a second is the label claim that's made, whether it's percent RDA or how many milligrams of vitamin C or choline has to also coincide to be true by the best buy date if you used a best buy date on your product. So, you know, so if your best buy date says expires 9-2024, then your product has to meet that label claim by the end. It has to have what's called shelf life stability. And manufacturers are also supposed to in their manufacturing, do shelf life stability testing. The FDA does allow accelerated testing that is done by units, uh, research groups that will essentially just take your product and put it at in, in um, a higher heat for a shorter time to see what happens. And they do a few other things, but it's, it's an estimate of what would be true at that one year or two year time. So not only do you have to meet the label claim, but the label claim has to be true at the end of that date. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Um, Tony, uh, we're we're a little uh, we're running uh, short on time. I have a fun question for Doug, but I wanted to give you a chance if you wanted to pick Doug's brain on all the regulatory issues and you know anything else. Well, uh, just I want to make a statement first that um, that was one of the more fascinating statements I think you're going to hear anywhere because you don't hear it often. That is the extent to which OTC supplements for performance largely, that's what we do, not exclusively, but largely, um, and health, of course, are highly regulated. I mean, you, you never hear that. I don't hear it anywhere. Now, sure, if we go to a conference in which that is the topic of discussion, yeah, but but even at ISSN, we don't perhaps discuss this in as great as detail um, with as much frequency as we'd even like. And I, I think we do. We do a nice job at ISSN. But I would I'd love everybody to hear that once again. This, it's fascinating to me that somebody with Doug's uh, lineage in the industry, credentials and knowledge. And I have to say, I don't know anyone better. Um, can come out, make that statement. And you know what? I walk away with great confidence in it. It, So it's really more uh, for me of a fascination with what we just heard than, you know, uh, anything of a question other than, I I guess we could feel pretty good with the direction. I, I know this is quite a complicated yes or no answer, Doug, but generally can we feel pretty good when we're buying most products about a reasonable you know, label claim efficiency. I mean, are we we getting close to what what, what they're saying based upon everything you noted to us? Great question. Uh, That's a great question. And here's what I'll tell you. Um, and, and this is kind of common sense. First, in general, brands that have been around for what you might consider a long time have been around for a long time for a reason. Okay. And Good. typically part of that reason will include consistency in their quality control and product that they deliver, yeah. right? You know, while you and I might think the Pop-Tarts of today taste different than the Pop-Tarts of when we were 1985 and, 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 and 16, 17, 18 years old or whatever <laughs> we were back then, that is different than, um, you know, the quality control. So mm-hmm. companies that have been around a long time are, you know, obviously better ones if, if you're an uninformed consumer but you know, hey, I recognize this product, this brand. You know, they've been around since I was a kid. You know, that's a, a good, uh, a good thing to look for. I do believe in the power and validity of uh, some of the certifications that are out uh, that are out there for products that they not only certify that they meet the, the law for good manufacturing practices, like certified GMP facility, 
but also certified for a label claim for meeting label claims or and, and things like this have value. I think that if you are a higher echelon athlete, and this is not on an individual basis personally, but meaning that if you're a competitive athlete that is doing something that is drug tested, whether it's a one-on-one -on -one sport, like you're doing duathlons or something like that at a high level, Hawaiian Ironman triathlons, or you're a, a collegiate athlete um, or um, a professional, and you are going to be some sort of drug tested, it's just smarter to go to purchase the products that have been vetted to be free of banned substances. And just remind us, Doug, the GMP for the facility itself and the label, what are they looking for? On the label, I would look for, you know, in America, these are the three easiest, and there might be more organizations to look for certified, you know, that the products have been tested and they're certified free of banned substances. And if you have that certified GMP with that, it's great. So meaning that they could be informed choice uh, or informed sport, uh, they could be NSF certified for sport, or they could be BSBG, Banned Substance Control Group uh, certified for sport. Those are three organizations I will let the listeners or watchers, um, uh, uh, viewers, um, know. Those are three of the five organizations that are globally endorsed and supported by USADA, the United States Anti-Doping Association, to be types of products that athletes should look for should they choose to use a dietary supplement. Awesome. Now there's also um, uh, the German, uh, uh, it's called German um, uh, Cologne List. Uh, and then there's uh, Pasta, which I believe is an association from Australia that are the two other USADA approved organizations yeah. for certifying dietary supplements. It's also a myth that USADA is anti-supplement. Heck, um, uh, it's in their it's in their book for when you work with USADA tested athletes, what they look for. Uh, Tony and I have both received every year. We get the UFC updated list, exactly. the UFC PI, UFC updated list of of all of this stuff. And um, one other thing that I wanted to mention, I know we have to close for time from a regulatory standpoint, is two other things quickly. Is within regulations are things as related to claims are called structure function claims. Mm -hmm. And that is a claim that you'll see about a product on a product where it's discussing how a specific ingredient affects either the structure or function of a physiologic reaction in the body, right? Take creatine, you can increase intramuscular phosphocreatine. Um, Vitamin C, antioxidant function. Although there's actually a definition of what you could call antioxidant in the regulations too. So those are kind of things I want you to think of. And separately, besides these federal guidelines, the whole industry is also regulated by states. So for mm. example, the, the, the state of California has their own laws like every other state, but in there, there's a law that affects every industry that's known as the Prop 65 law. So any product in the Prop 65 law in California is a list of ingredients that no matter how the data was obtained, that the Cal California will declare these list of ingredients are known to the state of California to be carcinogenic. Now, some of the ingredients that are listed in there have only been carcinogenic in a Petri dish, but are not in people. Mm -hmm. Or some have only been uh, when they're given at like 500 times a human dose to a, a rodent. So now any company that sells a product that's also sold in California, they also have to, by regulation, put a, a, a Prop 65 warning now on their product somehow, somewhere. Um, and, you know, so these things all affect the industry and it's very regulated. I'm happy to talk to anybody about this when we're at the ISSN annual conference in June and everybody should sign up now and make sure you get your hotel uh, all squared away. Um, and, 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 and of course, for, for anybody. Um, so thank you for these questions. Yeah, so definitely, awesome. uh, definitely get your hotel squared away. Cause people always, they always email me at the last minute. Hey, I need a hotel room. Hey, you know, the conference is one week away. Maybe you should have done that like a long time ago. So well, Doug, you don't control Hilton and Doug will, get, Doug <laughs> or will be the there or, or, or the Westin. <laughs> you don't control all of the hotel industry. I'll <laughs> say, uh, uh, Dr. Kalman has an extra bed. You could stay in his room. Uh, no, 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 no. My wife won't like that. <laughs> Asher won't like that. To close out, Doug, um, whether you apply this to endurance athletes, strength power athletes, or somewhere in the continuum, your top five uh, sports supplements for, you know, it could be however, you know, however you want to frame it. So your top five supplements, I would think creatine's up there. So big five. 
<laughs> Give me your four. <laughs> okay, I'm I'm going to exclude protein because okay. protein is a macronutrient, and depending upon how the companies sell it, they can use either a nutrition packs label or a supplement packs label. True. Doesn't really matter. Right. So, creatine, fish oil. All right. Sushi. Mm, vitamin D. Ooh, okay. Sunshine. Multivitamin. Oh, I take that. One a day for old men. <laughs> I have a conditional one depending upon the athlete. And that conditional one is beta alanine. Ah, yeah. I love it. Yes. And also, and since you limited point, me to those. Explain um, the condition for beta alanine so that the audience knows. Well, in general, if... um. In general, if you read the ISSN position stand and, and data support uh, uh, regarding beta alanine, beta alanine seems to have its most effect. It acts as a cellular buffer, intracellular buffer. So thought of it, think, think of sort of think of beta alanine as a Tums for your muscle for when there's a lot of an accumulation of hydrogen ions and acids that start altering the pH of the muscle intracellularly. Beta alanine acts as a stage two buffer. So it allows you to go a little bit harder, longer before your muscles tap out and ask for a little bit of a break. In sports, this translates to sporting activities that are generally about one to four minutes in duration. So if you think about using creatine and increasing intramuscular creatine and even serum circulating creatine, Creatine has its greatest ability for things that are eight to 12 seconds or so mm -hmm. in, in output. So if Tony and I are boxing, generally most hard throws are no more than eight to 10 seconds, 15 mm -hmm. seconds if somebody's going all day hitting somebody, right? So those bursts, creatine will allow you to repeat those bursts because you have no, more intramuscular. But those rounds can be two minutes, three minutes, right. or five minutes. And so beta alanine, helps act as that buffer to allow your muscles continue to do its physiologic function at a higher output level longer during that duration because it acts as an intracellular buffer where, believe it or not, creatine has some extracellular buffering capacity as well. Awesome. So, I mean, so in summary, though, despite the fact that it may have no value in hypertrophy athletes, uh, according to some recent research, and hypertrophy athletes to me is an oxymoron, um, but it has a, a, an effect in real athletes. Aren't, so, you aren't you hypertrophic as a result of your athletic endeavor? If you're a real athlete, yes. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to get involved with that real. I don't want to get a beat down. Um, I'll take the what, beat what down. I will say I'll is, take the beat down. But what I will say is um, um, my boxing days might be behind me. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. But, but um, boxing is a real athlete. They, yeah, but, yeah. but beta, you know, but with that, to me, when I look at sports and I've had baseball players ask me about it, I don't see the utility. Right. right? right. You're playing center field. You don't even move. You're going to be there for longer than four minutes, but you're not sprinting or, or running at a higher capacity for three minutes. You're running exactly, for 10 seconds. Exactly. Yeah, and I was just being a wise guy. My point is if it doesn't do much in eight to 12 reps at right. an average of three sets, yeah, three no. seconds a rep, four seconds, no. you know, it, it, I understand that because some research shows it doesn't. But for those, the, the analogies that you gave or the, um, you know, in the repetitive bouts, three, four, you know, five in, minutes, in, in the it should be a great supplement. Tone, in the weightlifting community where it may have some potential, and I'm not familiar if there's a, a research data on this, on something that, on, on one of those things where, um, I'm not naming anything, but one of those things where it's a workout of the day, a high intense interval that's a timed you know, that's 20, 25 minutes in length, but you're going station to station to station to station. Yes, yes, yes. One exactly. of those kind of workouts, I could see some potential utility. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. But something where you're, you know, a Zumba class, I'm not so sure about. Right. right. I don't think that. <clears throat> yeah, no Zumba for that. So before I let you go, Doug, I want to mention the ISSN conference, June 15 to 17, Fort Lauderdale Beach. Be there, register at ISSN.net. That's ISSN.net. Dr. Ichi, Dr. Kalman, thank you. It's been a great show. The regulatory stuff is super awesome. cool. And uh, it's much appreciated. So uh, have thank an you, awesome, awesome evening, you. guys. Thanks.